Uh, This morning, if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, our text this morning will be chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We are in the season of Epiphany, uh, the season in which we ponder the manifestation of Jesus. Like, why did, when Jesus came, what did he want us to see? What did he want us to observe? What did he want us to know? Uh, What is this all about? And we started looking through Luke chapter 4 because in Luke chapter 4 we have the beginning of the, the, the work of Jesus. And so we're seeing firsthand the very first things that he was about. What he was manifesting to us. What he was showing us. What he wanted us to catch and to observe so that our lives might be changed. And in Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 we have the calling of the very first uh, apostle. The very first apostle. Uh, but what I want you to see here is not just the calling of the very first apostle, because I think, I think that misses some of the point of the story. I was, I was sitting here um, uh, towards about the middle of our, of our singing. I just had to sort of stop and listen, because uh, it's so interesting to me how often um, we find it impossible to talk about God without saying something else. So we sing, My Heart Runs. And all of a sudden, my mind goes to hearts bursting out of chests and you know, running down the street. I mean, obviously, our hearts don't run, but there is a sense in which that's true. And we're sort of like scratching at the surface. Like we're trying to make manifest some truth about this thing that we've encountered in such a way that other people might make sense of our insanity, Right? I mean, it is crazy for you to be a rich young ruler and say, yeah, I'm going to leave it all and follow you. It's insanity, as we'll see today, to have the biggest catch of fish in your life and say, you know what, forget it. I want to follow Jesus. That's crazy. So how do we describe this craziness to other people? We use metaphors. We use stories. We use songs. What's interesting about Luke as we open up in chapter 5 verse 1 is he says on this occasion or on one occasion, on an occasion, which is incredibly not specific. And Luke is almost always very, very specific. He says the governor was reigning over this region and then this all began to happen. But here he says, well, this, this one time, this one time, you know, and what's important here I think is drawing that there is a a separation of time between chapter 4 and all the things that Jesus has been up to in chapter 4 and what he is going to do here in chapter 5. Because in chapter 4, we have seen him go throughout the region of Galilee. Um, And here I'll throw up my handy-dandy map. Uh, All of the region of Galilee and then all of the region of Judea. And he's been in these synagogues. And he's been preaching and teaching. And, and, and demons are coming forward out of people and confronting him. And people are bringing sick people to him. And he's, he's laying his hands on them and, and healing them and blind and lame. I mean, these incredible things are happening. And people are talking about Jesus. Right? They're talking about Jesus. And this is fulfilling some of the words of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 says this, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, which is yay, and the land of Naphtali, which is yeah. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. Again here speaking of the sea of Galilee. 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so this is a prophecy that is speaking to this region right here, the region from which Jesus hails. This area has been oppressed since the time of the 500s by every single occupying empire. They have been under that boot. They are the downtrodden of God's people. They are the worst place to live. And God says to the prophet Isaiah, I am going to make the way by the sea glorious. Glorious. And if you're in that region, that's good news. Which just makes me stop and think for a second that there might be possibly somebody here today who feels a little beat down. Like you don't think things could get worse. Like you are at the bottom of the barrel. Like you are, of all of the metaphors, right? You are at the worst place. And it is to that place that Jesus manifests himself first. Jesus comes to bring glory and he reveals himself as a light to the nations. Galilee of the Gentiles. That's everybody that's not a Jew, right? So the light of the nations is going just beyond the downtrodden of Israel and into all of the world. This is what Jesus is doing. So all of this stuff has been going on. And Jesus is, 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 is busy, you know, doing all these things. And, and suffice it to say that we get to a point in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 1, where Jesus is a rock star, like for lack of a better word. He is a rock star. People are all about Jesus. They are um, coming to him in droves. They are crowds of people who are pressing in on Jesus. And of course, you know who Jesus is, right? I mean, we know this is true. They're pressing in on Jesus, and they're pressing in on Jesus. If you look in your Bibles, and I I encourage you to underline this line, um, they're pressing in on him for a specific reason. And what I really like about this part is it doesn't say miracles. It doesn't say we're looking to see another demon exercise. It doesn't say I'm looking to see another healing happen. It says that the crowds were pressing in on Jesus to hear this, the word of God. The word of God. And that bears underlying in your Bibles. It, it says that Jesus is not bringing you uh, uh, handy opinions. He's not bearing out good advice. He's not giving you pearls of wisdom. He's not giving to you, you know, here, let me give you the best advice for your life right now. Let me, let me share that with you. No, he is bringing to you the word of God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 24, whoever does not love me, does not keep my words. And we have a lot of interest. In fact, I would say Jesus is as popular today as he has ever been. People love Jesus. He's very interesting to them. Right? As long as we can pick and choose what he has to say. Notice what he says. He says, if you want to love me, you must keep my words. Why? Because my words are not my own word. As he continues there in chapter 14, he says, the words that I speak are not mine. I am speaking to you the words of God. God has delivered a message to me, and I am delivering it to you. What does that mean? That means if Jesus says, do not divorce, if you love him, you will not divorce. If Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, that you might be the sons and daughters of your Father in heaven, what does he mean? 
He means love your enemies. If Jesus says, God made male and female, and he brought them together that they might be one flesh, which is what Jesus says, and we use in our modern parlance, in our catch-all word, Mary, what does Jesus mean by that? means this is how God has ordered the world. I bring these three up because they are as controversial as you can get. No one's left. This is wonderful. Must have a friendly audience here today, right? Because I've stepped on about everybody's toes at this point, at least with the love your enemies thing, right? And Jesus is on everybody's toes And he's still popular, and yet in all of the scriptures we see, Jesus never seems overly concerned with popularity. He seems concerned with delivering something important, and that is the word of God. My goodness, church, when did we get so worried about being popular? When did we get so worried about people looking at us and say, yeah, we don't agree with you? Of course they don't agree with us. They don't agree with Jesus, right? Why are we worried about these things? We are called to be the people who deliver the word of God, just as Jesus delivered the word of God. And what I see that sort of scares me, because you know the, the people who don't believe in God, they, they have their own thing going on. But what scares me is the people who say they believe in God, that say they're Christian leaders. And I bring this up and belabor the point because our president, who we should uh, be praying for and not bashing on Facebook, I believe that's in the scriptures, Right? Whether you like him or not doesn't really matter a whole lot to me. Um, but you should pray for those who lead that they might make wise decisions. You think Daniel liked Nebuchadnezzar? But what does he do? O king, live forever. Let me give you some advice. The Lord has told me this, that he might spare you this. Right? Right? Okay. Crying out loud, people. Facebook's driving me insane. Where was I? I was tangenting. Um, I don't even remember. Where was I? Oh, right, yes. Okay, so the president. Uh, the president has, has, has called together three people this week who are going to advise him on spiritual matters. And that, that's good. I'm glad the president is doing that. That's wonderful. Unfortunately, he has picked three people, all of which, either in word or deed, deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Completely. They deny that the Bible is the word of God that has the ability to tell you right from wrong. They deny that all of Jesus' words are Jesus' words. And of course, they're not going to say to you, and no one will ever do this, just so you know, almost no one will ever do this. Ah, Bible, you don't need that, right? Nah, Jesus. But what they'll say is, well, maybe Jesus didn't say that. Maybe that was some interpretation that somebody along the way injected into it, right? Or maybe Jesus was just speaking to his context. You, you remember Satan in the garden, the, the serpent comes to, to Eve and, she, and he says, ah, forget God. Just eat that apple. It looks so good. He says, did God really say this? Right? That's the way that things work. The attack upon scripture, the attack upon this line that Jesus is speaking, the word of God, the attack that is happening there isn't, hey, throw the Bible out the window. It's begin to pick and choose. It's begin to cut and paste. It's begin to remove this little bit because maybe Jesus didn't say that or maybe Paul didn't mean that or maybe that was just speaking to that context at that time. Really, when we start doing that, what's left? What's the criteria that you're making those judgments on? Isn't your own opinion? And if it's your own opinion, then where are we? We're just fancy the existentialists that still show up on Sunday morning. We're people who are looking for our own truth. We just happen to be using the Bible when it suits us. And this is what we would call a direct line to atheism. 
If you want to come into my office, I welcome that. I welcome you to come and borrow all of my Richard Dawkins books. If you read Richard Dawkins very carefully, there comes a point where you have to answer the meaning of life. Why am I here? What am I doing? What is this all about? And if all we are are chaos on top of chaos, accident on top of accident, evolutionary fluke, because given enough time, things happen and here you are, there is no purpose. And so what do you have to do? He says you have to manufacture purpose. In fact, from his website it says this. The important thing is simply to gain a sense of life purpose and meaning. The source of the purpose itself is not so important. Did you catch that? The source of the purpose itself is not so important. So find purpose. Where it comes from, it, maybe it's church, maybe it's not church, maybe it's video games, who, you know, who knows, because it doesn't matter, which means something important. It means that your meaning is, in fact, meaningless. Your meaning is meaningless. There's no intrinsic value to you. There's no intrinsic value to me. There's no intrinsic value to anything except for whatever you want to put into it at that time. And my friends, that is hopelessness. What I love about Jesus is he comes into the world to speak the word of God. And what is the word of God to us? It isn't you are meaningless. It isn't you are purposeless. It isn't you are some kind of cosmic accident giving enough time and chance. It is this. It is but before the foundation of the world, you were chosen that you should be holy and blameless before him to the praise of his glorious grace according to the riches of his grace which is lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known the mystery of his will. That's incredible. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are designed to give glory to God and to enjoy him, to love him forever. And along with God comes God's people. Along with God's people comes a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Fall in love with that God, as Jack pointed out so beautifully. Fall in love with that God because, man, that is truth. That is meaning. That is meaningful meaning. We are made for more. I call you to recognize that. And to see that in this story, what's interesting about this story is we go on in, in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. They come to declare, the, or Jesus declares the word of God, and he's standing by this lake. Um, and he sees two boats, and he moves into the story of this story actually happening. But Jesus, or Luke here doesn't tell us what Jesus says. You notice that? I mean, Luke, who's so meticulous, who, who outlines Jesus' sermons in various places, who who talks about all kinds of details, he tells us nothing about what Jesus actually says. Isn't that interesting? I find that interesting. Why? I think it's because the point of the story is the story. Again, we use story, we use song, we use metaphor, we use example to try to scratch again at the meaning that God is trying to bring into our lives. And if there's anything that every single person in this world is looking for, it is this, it is meaning. Peter is fishing. His job, his family, perhaps that's his meaning. Perhaps he's out there fishing and wondering, do I have any meaning at all? Is this all I am, just a fishmonger, right? Is that all I am? 
The crowds are pressing on Jesus, it says. The story goes pressing in on him. What's interesting, too, about the way that Luke tells this story, we don't read it in English, but if we read it in Greek, the word actually is laying upon. It's not just pressing in. So idiomatically, we would say what Luke is getting at is they're pressing on him because there's so many of them. But literally what Luke says is, oh my goodness, help me. I'm being laid on. Right? That's how intense this is. And so Jesus needs a little help. This is not a state that you want to be in. And so he calls to Simon. I keep on using the word Peter. You recognize that Simon and Peter, they're interchangeably. Jesus changes changes his name to Peter later on. And so I'm using Simon and Peter interchangeably because they're the same name for the same person, or a different name for the same person. Um, And so he calls his friend uh, Peter, Simon, who we talked about last week. He healed his mother-in-law. Hey, can I hop in your boat and can we kick off on the water a little bit so I can teach these people? Because, right, I'm tired of this. This is no, no mas, right? So we go out upon the waters. This was our family art project for the week, if you can't tell. Uh, mostly Laura and Emery. And, and, he's, and he's teaching them. Uh, and and they're, they're in, these, the, in this boat and he's, he's teaching them, uh, the people. And eventually, eventually he finished speaking, we read in verse 4. And he says to Simon Peter... Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever, ever worked third shift before, but this is what Peter's been doing. They've been out all night. In fact, they had pulled their boats in. They were washing their nets. They were ready to be done. And if you've ever worked third shift, you know there is nothing worse than the boss coming to you saying, hey, can you stick around for a bit longer, right? Because there's only one thing you want after that shift is done. Go home, Right? And so I see Jesus stepping in this, and I, I don't, this is probably my own sort of sinful nature, but I see Jesus being a really sarcastic guy, you know, just sort of smirking at Peter and saying, hey, you know, let, let's go fishing. And I see Peter going, oh, seriously, right? Seriously? You, you, can, you hear that in his voice, Master, we toiled all night. Like, I've done this. Like, I've been doing this for a while. I know how to catch fish, and they aren't biting. Master, we've toiled all night, but at your word, I will let down the nets. I want to point out a couple things in that. First, I want to point out Peter. What has Peter seen Jesus do? What's he seen Jesus do? Seen him cast out demons? He's seen him heal people? He saw his own mother with a high fever, a dangerous fever, and he rebuked the fever. He said, fever, take a hike. And the fever, it got up and left. I mean, he's seen some crazy stuff go on. Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. He says, Jesus, you can't do this. I've already tried that. Really, Peter? Like, really? I feel like casting out demons and healing fevers and you know, giving the blind sight and healing the lame is probably more impressive than any catch of any amount of fish. Like, and yet Peter says, I've already tried that, Jesus. I just, I just have to stop and wonder like, how many of us here today have seen God do incredible things and the people around us, maybe even in your own life. And Jesus is saying, cast your nets out. Notice that Jesus says that. He doesn't say, hey, let's go fishing. Why don't you throw a net out? He says nets. He actually is in the form of saying like all of the nets. 
throw all of the nets on. And what is all of the nets? Because it doesn't just include Peter. Peter's got partners. He fishes with James and John. And so together they go out and they fish. Jesus is saying, get everybody. Let's go on the lake and let's catch some fish. And nothing will make Peter look stupider than going out on the lake with his partners and throwing out nets and pulling in nothing. Because James and John are going to be like, dude, seriously, right? Really? You got us out here for this and what have we caught? Nothing. So Peter's tired and he wants to go home. He's ready to give up. He doesn't want to call his friends in. And Jesus is saying, listen, man, you've seen me do more. How many of you are holding back? You've seen God do incredible things and you are holding back. Peter goes out into the water. And they throw their nets. He throws his nets into the lake. Um, And you know the story. A great pile of fish appear in the net. In fact, there's a lot of fish. And more fish than even the nets themselves can handle. And so he calls he calls James and John, and you can see him shouting from the shore, like trying to pull these, these fish onto the boat, and the net's like breaking and popping, and he's like, guys, get over here, like, look at this and help me. And, and so they, you know, they're, I don't know, paddling or whatever they did to get out, motorboats, whatever. And then they were attacked by a monster. I forgot about the giant that attacked them. It's in your Bibles, I'm sure. Um, so they call Peter and, or they call James and John and they, they call and they begin to fill, they, I mean, they, they're helping them, they're getting the nets in there, so they're getting all of the fish into the boat and man, the fish pile is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and they're psychedelic fish, I don't know why, just the way they make them in Galilee. To the point of which the boats themselves are starting to sink under the water. I mean, like this is, the greatest catch of fish ever. And you think to yourself, man, I think I want to go fishing with Jesus, right? This is the guy to go fishing with. But then something powerful happens. And this is, this is I think, a moment of transition for Peter because Peter has seen God do, he's seen Jesus do all kinds of things. He's seen the miracles, he's seen all of that. And yet it is this point This point that he gets on his knees and he says what? Look at your text. He says, thanks Jesus, let's do this again tomorrow. No, that would be, that would be like sort of the worldly thing, right? That's, that's, that's the focusing on the wrong things part. What's he say? He says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. There's a moment here where, where, where Peter, fi- it all like finally clicks in Peter's brain, where it finally makes sense that Jesus is not just any guy. He's not just any prophet. He's not just any person that is sent from God. No, this is God manifest. This is something completely new, something completely other. And what happens when you encounter that for real? For real. And so here I'm speaking to some of you who have said you've been Christians for a long time. You've wore the name, you showed up to church, you sang the songs, you got the tattoos, you bought the books, you went home, you got the pencils and t shirts, you got the whole thing. You are decked out with Jesus. And you've never done this. Because when you encounter a holy God for real, 
the only thing that you can do is fall on your knees and say, I'm not worthy. I, I, I do, you, you have to leave. I can't, I, I, there's nothing I can do. And that's a moment of deep repentance. We use a word to get at that. Sorrow, guilt, confession, all of those words kind of scratch at the surface of the emotion. And you know what I'm talking to. If it's ever really happened to you, you know what I'm talking to. It is a, it is a moment that is absolutely indescribable. I have this moment in my mind. This one moment when I was 16 years old where I was like a weeping, bawling baby. Like the moment I, I just uncontrollable revelation of my own absolute guilt. Just absolute sinfulness. And yet, what does Jesus say to him? You're right, dude. You suck. I'm leaving. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, sometimes we want the do not be afraid without the I'm a wretched piece of person. You can't have that. And some of you are Christians here today and you've been stuck in this I'm a wretched person and you've never moved into do not be afraid. You're both wrong. You're both wrong. The intention of the scriptures is that we would come to this moment of deep repentance and deep truth where we would fall on our faces in a revelation of who God is and how far we have missed the mark, how far beyond the glory of God we are, how sick and twisted and manipulative. I mean, I think even this week, there was two points this week, two moments this week where I was like, dude, why are you such a terrible person? Like I actually stopped and said that out loud to myself. Why are you such a terrible person? Stop it. I mean, I try, just so you know, as your preacher, I try really hard not to be a terrible person. I really do. And I hope most of you try too, but I still find myself just needing to be in that place for a moment. Like, ah. Oh. But he wants us to move beyond that, right? Don't do those things again recognize your guilt, recognize your fallenness, and come into this place where you recognize also the great grace and forgiveness of God. Because if there is manifestation of Jesus, it is this. When, John, when Jesus is walking in John chapter 1, and John the Baptist looks at him, and he sees him walking, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and it is for you to hear that. So don't stay over here. Make sure you've been here. First of all, but don't stay over here. Move into Jesus saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But that's not where he leaves it either, is it? You notice that. That's not where he leaves it either. He says, do not be afraid in verse 10 of Luke chapter 5. For from now on, you will be catching men. I just had its raining men stuck in my head. Like, I have, to, I have to admit that that just came into my brain. That's not what Jesus means. Jesus is speaking about, you are going to now be a missionary. You are now going to be the same person that I am. Jesus brings us to a place where his mission becomes our mission. 
Jesus' mission, as we've talked about for the past several weeks, he manifests himself in many ways. But if we said, what's the very core of his mission? We had it in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns, for I was sent for this purpose. I am the one who has come to bring you the message that God's reign, God's rule, God's transforming power is at hand. It's knocking at your door, and he's calling you to invite it in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right, that passage from Revelation. That God wants to take your life and he wants to mess it up. He wants to mess it up. What Jack said was just so in line with what I was thinking about as I was finishing this sermon, as I was finishing reading this story, because again, this is the catch of Peter's life. I mean, this is when you take it and you, you, know, you add on to your house or you buy a new boat Right, one with a with a motor and room for more than two, as you saw, one that can survive giant attacks. Uh, you, you buy something, you expand the business. You say, "Hey, Jesus, let's do this again tomorrow." And Peter says, "What?" He says, "Forgive me, I, I, I've got nothing." And Jesus says, "I'll make you fishers of men." And the story ends with this: and they left everything. They pull the boats in, they leave the fish in the boat, and they walk away. It's a scandal of Jesus in your life. That he will step into it and he will change it and nothing will ever be the same. Nothing will ever be the same. That's why it's only those who have met Jesus in that hunger, that place, that desire for him, that can truly know him where they fall on their face before him. But he doesn't leave us on our face. And he doesn't just leave us with this, don't be afraid. He leaves us with this, You will be fishers of men. The last words that he said, and I know that those of you who have been in church for a long time probably memorized it. The last words that Jesus said were, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I know that you are here today, and I don't know what you do. Well, I know what a lot of you do, but I don't know what every one of you do for a living. I don't care if you work at Walmart. I don't care if you work for a a, a gas station. I don't care if you fix cars. I don't care if you are without a job right now. I don't care if you're retired. I don't care who you are, what age you are, what gender you are, You are called to this. If you belong to Christ, you are now a preacher. You are now a missionary. You are now called to share Jesus. Jesus' mission to declare the good news of the kingdom of God is now your mission to declare the good news of the kingdom of God. And what I want you to walk away from this story is just not just saying, well, that's really neat how he called Peter. That's really interesting. I want you to wake from this, uh, walk away from this story this morning saying, and he has called me too. And I know that whatever he has called me to, uh, he can do it through me. What a great grace God has given us. So where are you this morning? What is God calling you to do? Where is he telling you to throw out your nets? What ridiculous, impossible, insane thing is he saying, go do this to bring me glory, to bring good news, to see that other people know the good news of the kingdom of God. What is he calling you to do this morning? What's he calling you to do? Let's ponder that as we stand and sing this song.